Good morning. Before we dive in this morning, let me catch you up on uh, something that's happening here in New Anthem. One of the things that we believe the Bible teaches is a plurality of leadership, meaning there's no king here. I'm not making any decisions without help of a, a number of other people. And so uh, the Bible calls those uh, other guys elders. And so that's the term that we chose. Doesn't mean that they're old or anything like that, or it's not like uh, anyway, they're called elders. Now, the past three weeks, uh, in your welcome guides, we've been introducing you to these elder candidates. In the past few months, we've been training and we've been uh, growing together. And uh, I've been getting to know these men, and I'd encourage you to do the same. But before we uh, dive into the message, I want to catch you up and say that next week, if you're a member at New Anthem, we're going to vote to confirm these men as the leadership at New Anthem. And so I just wanted them to stand real fast. DJ, Joel Pumphrey, and Joel Smith. Uh, Joel Smith standing in the back, Joel Pumphrey in the back, DJ right here. If you didn't get a chance to read their little insert in the welcome guide, we've got some extra ones at Connection Corner. But do your due diligence. Get to know them, talk to them. Uh, They'll try and do the same with you all as they try and lead and govern you. And I I promise you the first thing that we're going to do as an elder body is figure out why the school's charging us for air conditioning and they ain't turning it on, all right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's not okay. So, but... In fairness, it's 65 degrees in the children's ministry. So if you ever needed a reason to volunteer in children's ministry in the summer, you you like being cold, then go volunteer in children's ministry because it's 65 degrees back there. But we're trying. We got fans going. uh, But I promise next week we'll have it figured out. Let me pray. We'll dive in. God, thanks again for being here this morning. Thanks for uh, your presence, God. We pray that you fill this room, that it be your words that speak. Nobody came to hear me say anything, but they want to hear from you, God. One second with you can change people's lives. We're praying for that to happen right now uh, as we open up your word and explore what you have to say. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I heard a story once about a businessman who did very well for himself. He made a series of investments at the right time, got out at the right time, and in the end, it paid off for him very well. And He was afforded luxuries that you and I cannot even dream of, houses, vacation houses, tropical paradises, a plane, cars with like a driver, not like Uber, like, I mean, a chauffeur. He had people drive limousine type things, and he was just able to do things with his resources that you and I will probably never be able to do. And unfortunately for him, all of that came crashing down the moment he had a routine checkup with his doctor. And the diagnosis was terminal. Quite shocking for a man in his position. He wasn't used to getting bad news. And this was the worst news you can get. Quite a devastating blow, especially for a man who was young, a man who had a wife and kids. When he got home to tell his wife, he was very upset. He he let his anger kind of dictate his response. And he told his wife that when I'm buried, I want you to cash in all of my assets I want, when I die, I want you to cash in all of my assets. I want you to sell the houses. I want you to sell the plane, sell the cars, and I want to be buried with the money. Now, 
Naturally, the wife was a little taken aback by all this, not to mention the fact that she just found out her husband had a terminal disease, but rather that he's going to take all of his money and their money, very much so, with him. She said, well, what about me and the kids? He says, I don't know, but I want every red cent coming with me when I die. Doesn't matter, apparently, about the wife and kids. I've already put it in my will that my money goes with me to the grave. So shortly thereafter, the man dies. At the funeral, all his friends and family and everybody is gathered to kind of celebrate this man's life. And the wife sat at the front, kind of awkwardly clutching this little small box. Got to the point everybody around her noticed her holding this box. She would not let it go. She would not let it out of her sight through the entire service. And at the very end of the service, she calmly walked up just before they sealed the casket, set the little box in there. People began whispering, what's, what's in the box? You know what that's all about? I don't know what that's all about. What's, I can't imagine what that might be. The end of the funeral, there's a lunch, and everybody was still talking about this box. What do you think was in the box? Finally, one of the woman's closest friends got the courage to go up and ask her, man, what's the, what's the deal with the box? So she told her about her husband's crazy response and how he had to sell, she wanted him to, or she was supposed to sell everything and put the money in the casket at the end of the service. And the friend said, well, surely you didn't do that. First of all, the box wasn't even big enough. And the wife said, well, I wrote him a check. Let's see. <laughs> if he can cash it, he can use it, right? I mean, so that's how that, that's how, that's funny, right? I mean, y'all didn't laugh as much as I thought. I don't care who you are. But Here's why I bring that up. Here's why I tell you that story. Because you might have heard that you can't take it with you. At the end of your life, you can't take uh, your resources with you. And that's very much true. But the Bible teaches, and in James specifically, we're going to learn about how, no, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Your resources are very much connected to your eternity. How you see your resources, how you view what they are for, that matters. And it matters to God. Our blessings here on earth are directly connected to where we're going to spend all of eternity. So let's look at this together. If you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it. Turn to James. These past seven weeks, we've just been going line by line through this book If you're new to the Bible, James is towards the back. There's a table of contents at the front of your Bible. You can find the page number there. You're going to want the big number five. Uh, We're going to go five through uh, verses one through 12 today. We're going to close out James next week. So it's the big number five, little number one. You guys there? All right. Now listen, you rich people. Time out. Because everybody just thought in their mind, "Woo! thank God he ain't talking to me. I ain't rich. I can figure out an app on my phone to get some AC going in here or something. I can kind of check out, start daydreaming, catch up on Snapchat, whatever. Not so fast. Okay? I'm going to show you that he is talking to you because I want to put a few things in perspective. If you have access to $1 right now, not like in your pocket, but I mean like maybe it's back at the couch at the house. It's just in there. But if you have access to $1 right now, you are richer than 70% of the world's population. If you made $300 last year, the entire year, 
made three, more than $300. Not like your accountant hid some things, you took a loss on a business. Not, I'm saying you legitimately made more than $300 last year. You are richer than 75% of the world. I'm going to put this in perspective. It's not to make you feel guilty. I want to put this in perspective. If you made $24,000 last year, two grand a month, if you made two grand a month, you are richer than 97% of the population. So 7.4 billion people on this planet, you're richer than 7.2 billion of them if you made two grand a month. I don't doubt some of you are struggling very much in your finances. You got a coupon, you've got to pinch pennies, you have to budget well. I know what that's like, but that doesn't mean you're not very wealthy by comparison. Just you living in the United States makes you very wealthy. I don't know, Pastor, I'm in a van down by the river. <laughs> Listen, you are wealthy by comparison to the rest of the world. Now, again, don't feel guilty. I'm just saying, let's put this in perspective. Let's keep reading. Now listen, you rich people, all of us, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Wow. Kind of an upbeat passage this morning here in James. Uh, but the truth is, the James is trying to get your attention. And I imagine it worked. I now have your attention, and James is not mad at rich people. He just wants to put some things into perspective. He, if you read this carefully, you can see James does not condemn wealth in any portion of his letter. He's warning us of the responsibility that comes with wealth. He's warning us of the perils that come when you have a lot of stuff. Again, it's not about wealth. It's not about the amount. In fact, write this down if you're taking notes. It's not about the amount. It's about your attitude. It's not about the amount. It's about your attitude. What I find interesting about this section of the letter is it's really divided into two parts. There's a part about your attitude, and then there's a part about your action. This is all about attitude. These few verses here. And the next passage that we'll read is going to be the actions that you should use and do in order to help change your attitude. Once you understand there's something possibly wrong with your attitude, what can we do about it? Again, your attitude matters. It's not about the amount. I know plenty of rich people that I will see in heaven because they understand that what God has given them in wealth, they're to use for the advancement of the kingdom here on earth. But I know plenty of middle-class people who don't have the same attitude. And they decide to invest everything into themselves, and that makes me nervous for them, primarily because of this passage. 
James is writing, there's a couple dangerous attitudes that you need to understand about life and specifically about money. Here's the first one. Money will create contentment. It's a dangerous attitude. Money will create contentment. Money does not create contentment. Here's the thought process here, though. Well, once I have X amount of dollars, then I'll be content. Then I can relax. Wrong. Money does not create contentment. In fact, secular research is proving the Bible true on this point. In 2014, Media Dynamics, Inc. revealed a study that showed a typical adult's daily consumption of media has grown from 5.2 hours in 1945 to 10 hours in 2014. Our consumption per day in media, that's things like your phone, your tablet, your computer, at work even, television, radio. We spend close to 10 hours a day on those devices. Not necessarily wrong. It's just kind of our new reality. You've got to use media for work and things like that, so don't hear me saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that 10 hours a day we're using media, including things like magazines, books, all of it. Media is 10 hours a day. Studies summarize that the number of ads that we as adults are now exposed to because of this 10 hours of media is up to 360 ads a day. So TV, radio, internet, newspaper, magazine, 360 ads a day. Now, this is what's really interesting. Our our time in media has increased. So there was this massive spike in advertising. People were going to capitalize on this, you know, media spike. It was up to over 700 ads a day that we were being exposed to, except we figured it out because we don't like ads. We figured out Hulu. We figured out Netflix. We figured out the DVR. Now we can just pause it. We fast forward the commercials. We change the radio station. We got serious now. There is no commercial. So we figured out and we're ma- we managed to cut those ads nearly in half. So it's down to 360 ads a day. Yet here's the truth. Despite all of our ability to block up com- uh, commercials and pop up ads and fast forward and all of that, to navigate around all of these ads, we're still bombarded with 360 ads a day, which means 360 times a day you're being told, that's not good enough. What you have isn't cool enough. You need this. You deserve this. What you have isn't nearly as meaningful as what I can get you. This is now what's in and you need it. You're being enticed 360 times a day. You're being called into discontentment. So you can see the environment that we live in, which I hope you understand, is incredibly wealthy just around the fact that you get 360 ads a day, but it sows into us a perpetual desire to need and want more. It's culture. You need and want more. The myth nearly every American has bought into and a lie that many of us will give our lives to is that you need more of what you actually already have. It's slavery. It's toxic. It's a lie. It's a treadmill that you're never going to be able to escape. There's always going to be something, the next big thing for you. 
sowing into you discontentment. Money does not create contentment. If you want to beat this lie of contentment, then join our missions team who's about to go to Haiti next summer. And you walk around a slum and you walk around a shanty town and then you put things into perspective of what you really have. Even better, take your kid there and let them see sewage going down the street and kids playing in it and see if that doesn't change their perspective about what they've actually got in their world. Am I preaching somebody? Yes. Here's another dangerous attitude about money. Number two, money will cure anxiety. Money will cure my anxiety. How many of you have felt compelled to buy something because you believed it would provide you with a level of security? We all have. That's why we buy sugar-free foods. We think it's going to help us lose weight. Then we're going to become more secure about ourselves. That's why we buy the car with more airbags because we want to be more secure. That's why we put the alarm in the house because we want to be more secure. Let me share a quote with you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an incredible theologian from the early 1900s. If you've never read his biography, it's fantastic. But he said this, Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry, but in truth, they are what cause anxiety. We all know it's true, too. We all know that things create anxiety. We're just not ready to admit it. I'm going to prove it to you. How many of you, your first car was a clunker, like a beat-up, Please, oh God, let it start sort of jalopy mobile. Anybody else? Yeah, I mean, that's the car that you had. It was not mine, but I remember a friend of mine's car. He was older than me. He got a drive before I could. His parents graciously gave him this Ford probe. You guys remember these death traps? They were, I mean, it was not okay. His was kind of rusted out on the front end, so he just primered over it. We just left the primer. I mean, it was fine. It was just a weird maroon color anyway. So, But it was a manual. Um, not many people even drive manuals anymore, but you couldn't shift into fourth gear, so you had to go from like third to fifth, which is very complicated. Uh, you're going to get the RP. I mean, nobody even cares anymore because nobody drives it, but it was hard to drive. Plus, if you drove the car slow enough, it would like backfire. So if you are like going through a school zone, like kids and adults, everybody just hit the ground like shimmy towards safety. They have no idea what's going on. Uh, but that was the that was a car me and my buddy, we cruised around in. Sonic to Sonic, baby, in Newton. That's us, just driving. We thought we were awesome. But let me tell you something about that car. We never noticed a door ding. We never noticed a scratch. Somebody could have keyed that mug. We wouldn't have had any idea, and we wouldn't have probably cared either. I remember riding around it uh, with him for like two years. We never parked like eight miles away from a store entrance just to make sure nobody would ding up. Uh, it was quite the opposite. We were like, please, God, let somebody hit this mug. We'll get something out, you know? I mean, but things changed about the time I could drive because my parents bought me a new car. Now, all of a sudden, I recognized every door ding. I was very conscious about where I parked things. It did not take anxiety from me. Just because it was safer 
It created anxiety in me. Then I did get tempted to park far away, especially when people parked dumb. They parked on the line. Are you serious? We have the line. How hard is it to get in the lines? Like even now that drives me crazy. If I see somebody parked on the line, it's like, are you kidding me? My wife, she's always like trying to assume the best about people. So she'll tell me, babe, maybe it was the person before them that messed it up. And I'm like, you save that woman. There is no time for that, right? I mean, you give that nonsense to the children. Give me something to write with. I'm about to let these people know. They cannot park in this nonsense. But I have, that was crazy. I got sidetracked. There's, it creates anxiety. That's my point. All of a sudden, there's an anxiety around you because you get this new stuff. It does not, money does not cure anxiety. It happens with everything that you get that's new. Happens with new shoes. Happens with new clothes. Happens with the house. How many of y'all rented a house before you bought a house? You didn't care about that house, right? I mean, you drove around in it, like in the grass, did donuts, didn't matter. But now all of a sudden... You're watering the grass. You're making sure things look nice because you bought the house. Money did not cure your anxiety. It only created more of it. There's an angst about keeping your stuff nice. See, our boy Dietrich, our boy James, ultimately really Jesus, they're all saying the same thing. Stuff creates anxiety. doesn't solve it. Ultimately, you're just masking your anxiety by buying more stuff. And you're creating more anxiety in you because you're not getting to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is this. You're too much in love with the world. Second argument around this idea of anxiety is that somehow if you just plan and save enough, then it will cure your anxiety because your future will be secure. So we need to be real honest about this Subject because things like saving for a 403b or Roth RIA, IRA, 401k, any of those things, those are all very, very important. So don't hear me wrongly. I think you should save and be a good steward of your money. But being a good steward of and placing your hope in are radically different. You tracking with me still? Placing your hope in. And saving and being a good steward of very, very different concepts. Here's why. Because my future is secure. As a Christian, I know my future is secure because my hope is found in something outside of this world. Now, as a Christian, it's my responsibility to steward the gifts God has given me well. That's God's grace on my life. So I hope you do have a 401k and a Roth IRA. That's incredibly easy to say, by the way. And a 403b. I want you to have all of those things. I want you to plan for your future. But do not put your hope in that. Your hope needs to be in Jesus Christ, who will hold you and help you in your time of need. That's where I'm placing my hope. I hope you do the same. It does not mean that you can be irresponsible. does not mean that you just blow money however you want to. Well, who needs a plan? God's going to take care of me. No, that's irresponsible. God's entrusted to you wealth. Read the parable of the talents. So, again, money does not cure anxiety. It's going to create 
more of it. Here's the last attitude that I think is dangerous. Money will spur generosity. Money will spur generosity. If I just had more money, I'd give more money away. Wrong. If you're not generous now, you're not going to be. Money does not spur generosity. Here's what John Piper said on this topic. Love this quote. I am wired by nature to love the same toys the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. And before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs. And I'm using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first at what man can do and not at what God can do. It's a terrible sickness, and I thank God for those who have forced me again and again towards a wartime mindset. Let me force you to a wartime mindset, because make no mistake, this Christian life is a fight, and it's a war. But because most of us didn't like history, or we're not great at studying it, and none of us probably lived through World War II, we don't remember the sacrifices the entire country had to make in order to pull off that victory. There's things like rationing in every area of life. You guys realize that's how like the bikini and short skirts were made? Because they had to ration material. I mean, that's unbelievable. But they had to ration food, tires. Women used to donate lipstick capsules so they could make ammo shells out of it. That's absurd to me. But that's what it took in order for us to pull off that victory. But the rise of the autonomous self here in modern culture is the me, 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 and what about me? And the earthly mindset that many of us have adopted has robbed us of the joy and thrill of being part of something bigger than ourselves. Sacrificing was never meant to rob you of joy. It was meant to create a joy and a happiness inside of you because you're doing something bigger than yourself. And we all long for that. We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We love the idea of self-sacrifice as long as it's not us who's, who has to self-sacrifice. I mean, we love the idea of laying down our life for something bigger than us as long as it's Jason Bourne who actually has to lay down his life. I mean, we don't want to, but we love this idea. Why do we love that idea? Because it's ingrained in us, into our soul. God implanted that on us to long for something outside of ourselves because he wants us to be part of the greatest story being told in the history of mankind. Fact is, we are in a war. God wants us to sacrifice for his name's sake. I'll show you in scripture. Jesus says this, watch Luke twelve fifteen. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What's Jesus saying there? Watch out. We're in a war. You need to be generous with your life. Stop trying to accumulate everything for yourself. It's not going to solve your problems. 
That's a dangerous attitude. James picks up on this teaching that his brother laid out throughout all of Scripture, and then he kind of makes this shift. So he said that these are these dangerous attitudes. Now here's the actions. Here's some things that we as Christians can do. Check this, James 5, 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Still talking about money here in this passage. Be patient then in light of what you now understand about money. Be patient. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other. Don't covet what everybody else has. Don't think you need that and they shouldn't have it, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door as an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, or you will be condemned. Again, he's talking about money in this passage. Over and over, some words jump out. Here's the first one. Patient. Be patient. Have patience. That's what James is saying. Almost all of us, though, had horrible examples in our family life. And here's what I mean by that. It it wasn't necessarily a horrible example, but here's what was demonstrated to us. What we remember as kids is about high school and college-ish age. And our parents are at their peak earning years in that moment. So what we see is our parents are living well. They got maybe get a new house, a new car. They're able to buy us a car or whatever it is. And so we see that. So when we get out of high school, college, whatever, we get a job, we think to ourselves, well, I should live this way. This is how my parents lived. And we don't see or remember the sacrifice that they had to make for years in order to get to that point. And we just think, oh, this is how normal life should be. And so we borrow money and do whatever, and we get into ourselves into a huge mess. And what the Bible says is be patient. Those things can eventually come. But there's no reason to model your life after your parents who are in their peak earning years. Be patient. Bible is clear about that. James is clear about that. Stop trying to get rich quick. That's why he had to throw in another P word. Perseverance. You got to persevere. Besides being patient, you also need to persevere. I think we forget that the curse laid out on us in Genesis 3 by God because man sinned was the idea that the world is going to war against us by the sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles, meaning the world is warring against your effort to get what you want. That's a curse. We try and spend all of our lives making things more efficient and convenient, and the reality is it's always going to war against us. It's why machines break down. It's why crops die. It's why pests eat stuff. It's a curse of sin. It's why you have to persevere and keep working hard through those things in life. 
an effort to kind of point this out, James points us to a guy named Job. Uh, I strongly encourage you to read uh, the story of Job. It looks like Job in your Bible, but that's okay if you pronounce it Job, whatever. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible story. Why do drugs when you can do scripture? That's what I'm saying, really. I mean, because it's incredible, this story and all these other stories in the Bible. But here's the story about Job. He's a dude who has everything. Huge house, lots of money, lots of livestock, great family. And then the devil comes in and God allows him to take everything away from Job. Takes his house, takes his kids, takes his livestock, takes his health. And through it all, Job perseveres. And he trusts God to see him through it. Despite getting some ridiculous advice from his wife and friends, God trusts, or Job trusts, in God. God rewards him mightily at the end of the story, blesses him a hundredfold. So let me ask you, how are you doing at persevering? You're thinking in your mind, well, I'm doing pretty good at persevering right now, Pastor, because it's hotter than the hubs in here. And, but I understand. Your reward, though, might be one step away. Keep persevering. That's what Scripture teaches. Here's the third thing James tells us. You want to have some action to help you with your wealth. Here it is. Be consistent. Be consistent. Preach an entire message on this one time, uh, but let me just repeat the point here. Money plus time plus consistency equals wealth. Money plus time plus consistency equals wealth. Be patient. Persevere. Be consistent. You're going to get rich in the end. I can prove it to you. Here's what an average American spends on a car payment per month. $479. It's the average. Across America, $479. Since 1928, the average return on an investment is 10%. So almost 90 years in the, horse, in the course of history, you can average about 10% return on investment. So if you would take that $479 a month and invest it over the course of 40 years and get your 10%, which is the average, you would have $1.9 million after taxes. Anybody else think $2 million sounds pretty good? That'd be a great way to retire. Two mil in the account. You just have to be consistent. You have to be patient. And you have to persevere the ups and the downs. Here's the last thing. You want to maximize your money. Show compassion. Show compassion. Remember how I started this message. It's not about the amount. It's about your attitude. I don't have to spend much time on this point because in my experience with this church, we've been tremendous at showing compassion. Compassion. You all are very generous people. Just last week, we had a pancake feed to try and get our youth to a concert in Kansas City, the Hillsong concert. Our goal was $800. Y'all raised $1,200. That's fantastic. When I was preparing this message, I was trying to remember a time that I set a goal out for you financially, and you never, and you always just blow through it. I couldn't think of a time of, of when we didn't just blow through it. You all are exceeding what we've budgeted uh, even for this year financially. 
So you are incredibly generous people. So I, I want you to make sure you understand that part of it before I say what I'm about to say. Because I don't need your money. And this church doesn't need your money. But scripture teaches that you should give 10% of your income. And so if you're not, why not? That's my question. Because it's not about the amount. It's about your attitude. What's your attitude when it comes to giving your income? Are you seeing everything as your own? Or are you seeing things as what God has given you and you just need to steward them well? It's just a challenge. I'll close with this quote, Mother Teresa. I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples. Same is true for us. Imagine what we could do if we sacrificed a little bit more and gave a little bit more. Imagine how much different we could change this community for the better because we're doing it in God's name and not our own. Together, we can go further. Let's pray. God, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for allowing us the freedom to come and open up your word and explore the truths that you've laid out for us. God, there's many of us here who have had a bad attitude about money. We've craved things. We forgot the war. And we just need to repent of those things right now. We're sorry for forgetting to show compassion to the church to the poor, to the broken. We want to do better, God. Send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way to help us do those things. Together we can go farther and help introduce people to your son who changes lives because of his death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you most of all, God, for that free gift of salvation. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.